I have the best job in the house, as you know, because I'm introducing the Third Coast Festival Scholars. And uh, they've come from far and wide to be with us, and they're going to present some really wonderful work. So I'm going to, well, we're going to, the way we're going to run it is I'm going to introduce them, and they'll each have 15 minutes to do a presentation. And at, at, at each, after each, you hear each, um, each feature, you'll have a chance to talk to the, uh, the young person directly about their work, and then at the end, hopefully, we'll have time to take general questions. So first, on my far left is Noe Cuellar, and Noe is uh, in the, at the sound department at the School of the Art Institute <coughs> in Chicago, right here in Chicago. It's Lydia Hahn to my direct left, and she's from the University of San Francisco. And to my right is Foudan Zengiumba from Radio Salus, that's a National University of Rwanda School of Journalism. So here we have the other side of the world with us, and Pendarvis. Harsha, who uh, is Howard University and Youth Radio. So between them, they have quite a number of years. Despite their youth, between them, they have a number of years um, experience among them. Um, I also want to say before I get started, I've been asked to say that uh, no cell phones, please. Okay. Um, so I'm going to start with Noe and ask him to tell you a little bit about himself and about his feature. Okay, uh, my name is Noe Cuellar, and I am uh, 23 years old. Uh, I'm about to finish school uh, in a couple months at the Art Institute. Um, I've been living in Chicago for three or four years now. I'm from Texas, from the border town, Laredo, Mexico, American border. And um, I know very little about radio, so the piece that I'm going to play for you is... Um, my first attempt at making a radio show. There was an opportunity in, in the Art Institute um, from the writing department and the sound department to make a, an hour-long show as part of a series to be aired um, at NPR, not National Public Radio, but Neighborhood Public Radio, which is the <laughs> other <laughs> <laughs> Which is pretty cool, too. Uh, and uh, they wanted to curate some shows for Art Institute students. Um, and play the shows um, at the Whitney Biennial um, Gallery in New York, which is just steps away from the NPR um, um, broadcasting studios. Studios, studios yeah. Um, so that's what happened, and I started working on it in February, and uh, it was writing and also figuring out how the writing was going to sound with my collaborator, Lisa Abaromarco, who has an installation in the other room, by the way. Um, she's a great vocalist and uh, like voice actor. So everything that I would write, I would pass, pass on to her. She would interpret it and make a character out of it. And we ended up making a, a, an hour-long show that's very uh, episodic. It changes like every two to five minutes, a different character. Uh, it's very quirky, and there's a lot of wordplay. Um, and it's, it was really challenging to make a five-minute edit to play for you, <laughs> uh, just because it has many sections. Um, it's not a narrative at all, so, so you will hear lots of um, field recording uh, sections that I thought were important to not have just a bunch of words. Um, thrown at the listener, especially if it's going to be aired at the Whitney Biennial when people are coming in and, and going. Um, so we had in mind that the, list, the, the listeners uh, were going to be 
they weren't going to be sitting down listening to the show. So it moves pretty quickly. salivation and in the long run HR hunger reduction. Baby spinach met a dancing sunset cold blue handsome onion peel. Uh, yes. Okay. <sighs> yes, yes. Thank you. Continuing questions. Yes. A moment of confrontation in Comparison and reflection. Where am I on this ladder? Uh, 
have I followed the cast iron rules of my cookbook? Have I drifted out the window and left the timer running? What is ready for the garbage? Rescuing peels, clocks, or anything in danger of extinction could result in remote conservations of a moth or an iceberg. So that's five minutes out of an hour, and yeah, I was gonna. Yeah. <laughs> my my uh, my comment was gonna uh, ask, let them know how you edited it down from um, that to this. Mm -hmm. The very beginning, the gong part and the guitar part is the actual beginning of the of the show, and then the rest I just chose parts that were short enough to cram a couple of them so it so you get the sense that it's changing because some of them were like five minutes and this had to be five minutes so i just chose the ones that were like 20 seconds or so um overall the show had a, a theme of <coughs> cooking so everything revolves around food and the structure of the show even though it's not a narrative it starts with gathering the ingredients then putting the ingredients together and then eating somehow uh, uh, the procedures of the middle of the show are, aren't actually things that you can cook with, uh, but they're rather procedures just for your imagination, I suppose. So, yeah. Does anybody have, yeah? Um, so people are walking through this place <coughs> and hearing this, is that how it's meant? It was uh, only in one spot of the, of the museum, uh -huh. and I think it was in the entrance. Um, so it was, you know, like if people are getting tickets or they're barely coming in, that's what they're listening to. Uh, and so yeah. were there other displays or artifacts or anything that indicated this cooking idea or was it just, you would just be washed? In, mm -hmm. in, uh, yeah, it would just be by itself. It wouldn't, there wouldn't be a, a visual <coughs> reference to it at all because it was a series of um, uh, two or three months um, each Thursday. Uh, and this got aired the 2nd of May of this year. Um, so every show was really different, and um, the, the rest of the people that made shows for this series were m making documentaries or something music-related, um, and we just decided to make something that uh, was just open to interpretation, not really a story or anything, so, yeah. In a, in a public noisy space like that, how did they, technically, how did they set it up to, to, to do justice to the sound? Were there sound showers, or, or um, how did they, how did they? Project? I'm not sure exactly what the, uh, how they set it, like if it was two speakers or one, like I'm not sure. But they used, they used like parabolic gear. <coughs> yeah, yeah, they had, they used their um, sound <coughs> installation gear, um, and they had it for the remainder of the whole um, series that they were doing. So why I'm asking is, is, is partly because it's a, 
horrific problem to have to deal with. But secondly, because if the sound really is concentrated in a particular area, mm -hmm. did you get a chance to watch people as they walk through that area and just see what their reactions were? Did I didn't, no. Um, yeah, I wonder. I wonder what it was like to listen to something like this when you're coming into a gallery, or especially if you don't know what's going on or why you don't know if it's background music or, or what. Just one, there's a spatial element. You know, they walk into the sound shower and out of the sound shower. The spatial element that you didn't build into it that might have be affected there. Mm -hmm. I understood like they put it kind of like in a walking way, so you did walk through it, but it wasn't exactly a station for listening. Um, cool, thanks. You know, I, I don't think the way you you think. Okay, so for me, uh, I just want to say, for me, it's like that was like an abstract painting. You know, you look at it and you take from it a lot of what. So how do you, you know, you know, the rest of the features we're going to hear, are fairly, uh, they're stories. So when you get into your your creative mode, when you when you put all these sounds together, how do you how do you do it? Mm -hmm. um, Lisa and I, the, the voice that you heard, one, uh, we wanted to make um, something that sounded like a mixtape with very like different qualities. That's why you hear something that sounds like a tape and then you hear something that's very clear. Um, so we did use as many microphones as we could get a hold of and as much tape recorders and make it sound like it's, um, like it's a compilation of, of characters, of times. Um, um, we didn't well, I didn't write a. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't write it from beginning to end. It was, you know, like I would write a paragraph, I would write a sentence, and then I would write two pages. So, if you listen to the um, to the hour-long show, you would get more of the sense that it's really done by chunks. Mm -hmm. um. Yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yes. Um, you might have said this, and I just missed it, but um, did you guys gather all of the sound yourselves, like all of the, I felt like I heard of birds, wings, and I heard mm -hmm. some things standing, and some, you know, dishes moving around. You guys got all of that by hand, or, you know, yourself? We mostly record it, most of the, most of the field recordings. But uh, due to time, we have to sample a couple. There's a, a, a text, the text in the beginning that says, listening to the cooking steam that's happening right now. Uh, we thought it would be interesting to put that with the sounds of an urban environment rather than actual cooking steam. And maybe this is like too much to read into the show for a <coughs> listener that's just passing by through this gallery. But, but we were doing a wordplay with, um, when we were working on it, we would, the show is called Brick a Brack. So we would just say, we have to work on brick, we have to finish brick. And then uh, since we have a lot of wordplay, we thought, that we would find a construction site recording of Finland and, and use that as the, as the cooking recording. So, <laughs> finish brick. It wasn't really a joke. It was just. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Okay, um, next is Lydia Hahn from the University of San Francisco. Okay. Hi. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I'm a little nervous, as you can tell. Um, my name is Lydia, and I'm a student at USF. And my piece is actually a montage of the project that I'm currently working on. 
and the main theme of my project is race and beauty and it delves into issues um, like racial identity and different perceptions of beauty in different cultures and a lot of the inspiration for this project came from my personal experience uh, the, my background and where I come from is very very important to me and um, I focus on Asian cultures in particular on this project and because I'm Asian myself I felt it would be easier for me to um, navigate the project in more familiar territory and um, I really wanted to try and explore that and see if other women were experiencing similar changes. My name is Megan. I am Irish, Norwegian, German. My name is Sarah and I'm Chinese. My name is Priyanka, and I'm Indian. My name is Ala, and I'm Russian-Jewish. My name is Leah, and I am Chinese, Vietnamese, and Caucasian. My name is Priya, and I am a Sikh. My name's Ishan, and I'm Chinese. My name is Angelica, and I'm Filipino. I did not think I was beautiful. I thought I was awkward and gangly and unattractive. Growing up in a very traditional Chinese family, we don't talk about love. We don't say I love you. Growing up, I lied about my heritage, which is sad thinking back on it, but it, it's just a part of how I have come to understand myself. I think it was my middle school dance because I came in an ethnic kind of Sikh sari and everyone was in kind of the dress of the day and so I felt really out of place. I felt kind of in the middle between white and Indian and I didn't know what I was doing. In the Philippines, sadly, what is more beautiful is to be more light-skinned because it means you are half Spanish or you're half German. Growing up, I kind of felt like I was not as beautiful because I was brown. The main thing with Asians are sometimes I feel like they have this need or this want to look westernized. I think they concentrate too much sometimes on trying to westernize their culture when they have their own. I don't think they actually <laughs> think to themselves, oh, I don't want to look Asian, I want to look white. They just see what's in the media and they think, oh, that's beautiful, I want to look like that. To the outsider, it seems like they want to look white. All these girls who are so young, they're so like obsessed with looks and being skinny, and it's so stupid, you know? But what are you going to tell them? Because all their favorite stars are, you know, losing weight and talking about weight problems all the time, and that's all you ever see, so. Have you seen Singaporeans? Most Singaporeans are generally skinny to begin with. It's just what's expected. What about the little girls who are listening to this interview? Oh, the little girls. Okay, I guess if I had a message to girls that are hearing this, it's just like, I guess it's not real, you know, all that stuff, it's just to make money, but you can't understand that. Girl, when you look and you listen and watch everything around you, you have to remember who you are and who you are when you look in the mirror is always going to change. You're the only person that can be you. So hold on to that. And once you really understand that, you'll realize that it's your fucking universe and you're fucking beautiful.
talk a little bit about where you want to go with this because this <coughs> is a work in progress. Yeah, there's a lot to be developed. I only have two segments so far for this project. The first, the montage that you heard is <coughs> um, the interview part. I interviewed eight women. And the second part is called CNBC. And I asked um, <coughs> women the same set of three questions about um, eyelid surgery, which is very, very common in Asian cultures. And it's more of a box type of segment. And other parts are yet to be developed. <laughs> so where do you see this ultimately being on the radio, online, on the web? Uh, there is a blog online, but there's nothing on it as of this moment. <laughs> and when I complete the parts in the future, I will upload them onto the site. What other sound elements do you see working in as you go along and as you kind of develop this thing more? Um, I was kind of interested in talking to a geneticist and asking him his professional opinion on eyelid surgery and getting a contrasting opinion of that as well. How about, I mean, sound itself? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I'm interested audio. in that too, yeah. Oh. But, um, the elements of the story, but like how are you going to, how do you think you could make this richer going forward with, make, like make it 3D almost, I guess is a, one way of putting it. Um, I guess right now the only layers I can think of are the actual voices and music. So I, it's still very much in the beginning process, so I still have a lot of brainstorming left to do. Thanks. I, this is, it's so thought-provoking and it takes me collected. It feels like it's somewhere between a box pop and sort of these broader interviews that bring up so many um, complicated issues. So I guess my question is, do you see this more as a box pop or more as a story? And if it is a story for you, what is the arc of that story? What do you feel like is the, at, at the end of this journey, whenever it's, I'm not that done is hard to say, but when it gets to where you want it to go, what is the story that you want listeners to sort of take from this? I guess I see a, a bit more as a story because um, the more significant part for me right now is the interviews, the end of interviews. And I guess I want um, listeners to take away that each individual is unique. That sounds kind of cheesy, but I think living in America, it's <coughs> difficult because there's so many different cultures here, and just knowing your place and knowing your identity is, can be so confusing. And not everyone fits into one category. So I think I want listeners to really appreciate who they are. I'm just interested in your composition process, though. The choices you made, and did you talk to other people? Did you have like a faculty advisor, or talk to other students, or um, how did you decide on the structure and the sequence? And for did you have an Yeah, but did you have an editor, or is this something that you did on your own? Um, yeah, uh, I kind of had some help from my professor Stacy. Actually, she's right there. Editor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a little matter of which we all know deadline, meeting deadline. Right. It's also a work in progress. Right. Yeah. It was, I was actually supposed to play another piece, but I wanted to play this one since I thought it would be more current. But um, as to the structure, I included a lot of um, Angelica. She's Filipino because she had a lot of great things to say in their interviews. So I definitely have preferences to which interviews I wanted to include in the montage. Um, some of the people that I interviewed, you don't hear them at all. Except for in the beginning when they say their name. So I definitely chose it based on what I thought would sound good.
Can you? So, oh, sorry. I was just going to follow up on that same thing. Yeah, well, this is another follow-up question. I was just going to say, explain how you, one thing that we didn't get to talk about, but that I know that you're really good at, is deciding which little piece is going to follow the next little piece. Like, there seems sometimes to be a way that you are making these decisions kind of strategically about who's following who. And I don't know if that's something you can articulate or not, but I think it was really interesting. Oh. Um, like, the order that you put people in. I don't know. I guess I just followed my ear. <laughs> I don't. I can't really explain it. Um, I guess for the part where they actually talk about themselves, um, I didn't realize it at first. But after I listened to it, after I did the rough draft, um, it followed a theme almost. Because in the beginning, they were talking about when they were growing up, and then it evolved into talking about their racial backgrounds, and then women, and then. Yeah, I, it just followed my ears. Was, was there a reason you chose to put the cut in about um, the Chinese families who don't say I love you? Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, but she didn't really elaborate on that. That was the only part where she said that about her family. But um, she also goes on in another question I asked. She says that Chinese families don't traditionally talk about their appearance. Mm. She never asked her parents, oh, do you think I'm beautiful? Or she never expected that from them. Yeah. Sorry. Hi. Uh, I'm just curious to know more about your motivation for picking this topic, why it interested you so much. Um, well, I guess, like I said, recently I've become fascinated with my own culture. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, but so I grew up very Americanized, and I, I didn't shun my culture, but a lot of it I I spent a lot of my childhood trying to be more American than Korean. So as I was growing up, I realized how important that is to my identity. So I really wanted to, I felt that if I felt that way, other women would be feeling the same way. May I ask two questions? Yeah. Okay, first one. <clears throat> Uh, why did you choose not to use yourself as a narrative arc or the spine of the story? Um, that's a good question. I actually <laughs> don't know why I didn't choose myself. I guess I never thought of that option. So. I, I, I suspect that, that there's a tremendous power in using My your own motivation voice. and your voice. And then that will give you a whole lot of um, options, too, when it comes to integrating other material. And my second question is, and I ask this, it's very self-serving. Um, I, I teach, and I never know how students feel about my interventions in their work. So in effect, I serve as their editor, but I don't know what that's like from your perspective. Can you or any of you talk a little bit about what it's like to have uh, your teacher or your mentor say, you know, try this, do this, do this, no, you know, lose that? Um, I actually find it really helpful. Stacy helps me all the time, and she um, is very meticulous, so I find that I try to follow that in my own work. I try to follow her example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're a tough breed. We can yeah. totally make it. <laughs> so. Actually, I'd like to hear what Drew has to say about that, because he has had to go through, uh, I'm sure, a number of edits on each of his um, projects. My professor 
and my mentor are both in the room. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> no, actually, I've been waiting to say this, actually. <laughs> no, but um, by all means, it, it, is, it is frustrating at times because you do feel like you get muzzled of sorts. You feel like your, your voice kind of gets clamped. Um, but at the same time, you realize that there, there's a reason that they've been in this line of work. There's a reason that they have this experience. There's a reason that they, they have this expertise. And so you kind of have to hold back on your ego and, um, and, and try to understand everything that they, they say. You know, there's, there's, I guess, bottom line, there's a reason that they want to make these cuts and they want your story to fit this way. They, um, many times they see the potential in something that I pitch that I don't see. And in the end, after going through so many rigorous cuts, I end up with a story that it, it's saying exactly what I wanted to say, but I had no idea I could say it in that manner. And nonetheless, it works for me. Also, I would love to just say one thing about Lydia um, in particular. When, when she um, was in my class initially, like now she's doing this independent study, but when she took, I have this as an embarrassing, but like when she took my first, the first class, it was also the first time I had taught audio at the university. And I was shocked by her first piece, which the students were, we were just learning how to do an interview and then mix Andy into the interview. And she chose a tap dancer out of the newspaper who was tapping on the streets of San Francisco for 10 years and was about to leave for Australia and she thought this would be good audio. She recorded all the interviews separately, interviewed him in a quiet room and put together this like rough cut of this piece that like just was amazing. So she, when she, you know, I want, she says I'm meticulous, but she's making a lot of really good choices herself, and I think she has a really good ear. So I just wanted to say that. <laughs> Lydia, how long uh, did you interview each of the women that you spoke with? Um, I asked each woman the same questions, but then it really depends on how much they wanted to talk about themselves. So the shortest interview was around 16 minutes, and then the longest was, um, Maybe 35, I think. Yeah, just for one second, can I go back to the, the piece that Stacy, is that, Stacy, is that mm -hmm. your name? Uh, Stacy mentioned that's the piece that won, the, um, that, that got, uh, she was named a scholar for. Was that, was, that was her, um, that was the, her, uh, her entry. Uh, yeah, her entry, thank you. Yeah. And that's online if you guys want to hear it. The um, address is US, uh, it's buzz. Dot com, and uh, it was the student podcast, and I think it was in the first episode. We can have one more question. Shout it out. Bernie, going back to the previous subject, have you ever wanted to sort of make a you know make a director's cut, and then the cut that your mentor wants, um, and play them side by side? Or does it yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's a great yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, I think you should do it, and then. Um, I guess you could say it's a give and take too. You know, after after a while of being in the the youth media eye, I guess you could say, they start to realize that oh, now you know what you're doing, and you're not so young and dumb anymore, <laughs> and you can make your own decisions. And it's a maturation process, mm -hmm. it definitely is. Well, and also, you know, I think we should ask Noe because we, he, you, you went from an hour to five minutes. So I mean, tell us how yeah, tell us how that felt, and you know, because. And I'm sure that your hour wasn't wasn't the director's cut, right? It was, you know, there was more than that. So how did you? Uh, 
How do you re you react last yeah, I, night I, when we said five minutes? Yeah, yeah. I don't. Well, what I submitted was ten minutes, right, which, which right. was kind of okay. Mm -hmm. You could get the scope of more or less like the structure of the whole show, but in five minutes, I think you just can't. It sounds well. It sounds to me like like it doesn't really go anywhere. Um, it probably sounds like that C2. <laughs> right. Uh, but I hope it doesn't sound too bad. Uh, I put the beginning so it, so you kind of get the, the the basic entrance of the piece, but. Mm -hmm. But uh, definitely five minutes is too short for right. this particular show. Well, I think everybody will agree with me. It sounded great, and I think part of it is because it's a, it's a such a, you know so so technically you know there. So I heard it last night and again today, and on second hearing, a lot came through that hadn't on the first hearing. Yeah. So I think that's it's a good to have that as a piece that people are going to wander through multiple times. Mm -hmm. I think it's a shame you couldn't be there when it was on, you know, because yeah. that would have been yeah. amazing to work through, to walk through the hall of, you know, and be in the place that you designed this sound to be in the space for. Yeah. Um, just one last thing, just to jump in. I had the same question, so it got asked, but I think it's interesting about my question for Lydia was why didn't you said that this was such a personal story for you, but then you so obviously didn't interview yourself, and I think sometimes that can be, and and I think. People always push, well, you should tell your story. I also think that there's a lot of strength sometimes in saying, if I feel this way, there must be all kinds of other people, like what you did, who also feel this way, and I want to give them a voice. I think that's really interesting. And I think sometimes having it in yourself and then giving voice to other people that way can be really powerful. Yeah, I like it. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to move on to Pudan and Sangyumpa. <coughs> Thank you. Yes, my name is Prudence Senyumba, and uh, in my culture, every name has meaning. And mine, Senyumba, means God listens to me and answers to my prayers. And obviously, that's true, because here I am with you today, coming all far away from Rwanda. Uh, I studied journalism and communication at the National University of Rwanda, uh, but I also work as a uh, I will work part-time at university's station, Radio South, which uh, started two year, three years ago now. Uh, but it reaches around five million people in Rwanda and um, parts of neighboring DR, Congo, and Burundi. So uh, I grew up in a small village in southern Rwanda, which is my hometown, also called with the second town of the country, Butare, which is also called Intellectual City. Uh, I, grew, I, I grew up in that small village, uh, in a small village, but in a big town like Butare, uh, listening to the radio when I was young. And uh, I have to admit that I have been obsessed with the uh, BBC, which is my favorite international radio. Uh, but also, I like radio so much that uh, because in in my culture, every like every individual has their own stories to tell. So and I like telling and listening to people's stories. So I, I when I was young, when I was in primary school, I was I, I always thought about a way I could be able to tell people's stories and. Um, that's that's how I ended up going in the School of Journalism and Communication, and then I had a chance to go at the Radio Salus. Uh, I was helped by many people, but 
above all, my editor here, Shelley Robinson. I'm super excited that she's here with me today. She's a Canadian professor, and uh, she helped me much with uh, my current affairs show that I studied at Radio South in English, current, uh, Saturday morning reports. And um, the story you're about to hear is a story that I pro is a story of a third ninety-old woman who lives with, with the HIV AIDS, but she didn't know that she lived with HIV AIDS uh, until she went to apply for a job and she was denied it. So I did it at the journalism conference when I was assigned on uh, a social issues story. And then I've been obsessed with uh, doing stories related to social issues. And then I went to do that. I started with an idea of uh, an association of women who lived with HIV AIDS, but uh, in the process, I in, because of because of the stigma surrounding people living with the HIV AIDS, I was most I was particularly interested in those women to know how they are treated by the communities. So talking to to those women, I found a woman who called, who was called Donata, and um, her story stood out. And you will all you will all understand when I say that what. Well, was stood out also was because her ability and her willingness to share her life, her story and to tell her story well. Because believe me, in my country, with that stigma surrounding people living with HIV AIDS and with the little trust of the media because of hate radio that was used during the 1994 genocide, Donata was the exception. So she accepted to share the story and uh, I don't know if we can play it. Donata Mukasha sits in her yard drying sorghum seeds on rectangular papyrus mats while she chats with her friend. Looking at Donata, there is no sign that she lives with HIV AIDS, but she was diagnosed with the disease 12 years ago. Afuye no kwipimisha ubwa mbere ntabwo yabimbiye konza gusasura muri matora mbona migisubizo When my husband came from an HIV test he didn't tell me the results I saw them under the mattress when I was arranging the bed I was very sad at this After I went to the hospital not for an HIV test but because I wanted to apply for a job and the employers told us to provide our medical status The doctor gave me the results of all my tests except the blood test He didn't tell me why but in that period people who had AIDS could not be hired In 1996 I went for an HIV test and that's when I found out that I was HIV positive Donata says contracting HIV from her husband led her to not trust any men since Jewe kubwanje nzi yuko abagabo bose barwaye sida. 
If I could be young and healthy again, I know it's impossible, but if ever could, the only thing I would put in my head is that all men have HIV AIDS and I would never marry because now I regret it so much. Now Donata is only 39 years old, but she remembers losing hope when she found out she was infected. She says she didn't want anyone to know, fearing discrimination and being an outcast in her village. After we found out we were both HIV positive, it became a big problem in the family and our neighbors stopped the relationship we used to have before. We used to share everything and because I used to buy and sell bananas, children could come home and drink juice. But after this time, neighbors told their children not to come anymore. They shunned me, but I never gave up keeping the friendship I had with them. Some understood, but some others still think they can catch AIDS just by socializing with me. Five years ago, when she thought that things were at their worst, her husband died. She has two children and says it's hard for her to raise them alone. I'm poor. You see, I'm a widow. I have to find a solution to every problem myself. And I don't have much resources and enough strength to work. But the biggest problem is when I remember that I'm HIV positive. I ask myself how my children would be if I die. She says the only comforts she has now are her wedding pictures that hang on the wall in the sitting room. She smiles as she describes all the people in the pictures. Teunese Ndaisaba is one of her neighbors who are gradually changing their attitude about Donata's family. She says they now live in harmony. The good thing I see about her is that she takes care of other people's health problems. She's a good health counselor in our village. She sacrifices herself despite her own problems. For example, she can meet a desperate patient on the street and help them to the hospital. Not everyone would do that because they are so busy. There is no cure or vaccine for HIV AIDS. But Donata's 12-year-old daughter, Leontino Muhoza, says she will be able to treat her mother one day. I wish and pray God to help my mother live longer to be able to raise us. Also, we are only two children in the house and we can't live here alone if she dies. But I want to study hard and become a doctor when I finish school so that I can treat her, give her money to buy food and buy her clothes to live a better life.
Kuba imana virayinezeza. Have faith in God and singing gospel songs. Give Donata hope for herself and for her two children. This is Prudence Ngyumva in Ibutare. Kuba imana virayinezeza. Kuba imana virayinezeza. Five days because, as I said, I, I, I did this story at the journalism conference, so I was working under pressure of deadline. And because they had only, we had only five days, and then I had to attend also the conference, so I did it within five days. Wow, mm -hmm. beautiful! Did you have an engineer mixing it for you, or did you do all the sound gathering, the writing, and then mix it yourself? If you were doing it in five days, I'm just curious. Did you mix it yourself? No, I mixed it myself because, yeah, because I, before this story, I had also produced the uh, other two similar stories, oh. but a profile story, so I did it. It was easy for me to mix it. Yeah. Very graceful. Thank you. Yes, please. I'm curious if you got to share this with other people, what the reaction has been. Uh, yeah, I, I played on my show, Saturday Morning Reports, but... The only problem is that only few people can understand English, but uh, I translated it into English, into French, I mean into Kinyarwanda, so that many people can understand it. And uh, the, the response I got and the feedback to this story is that it, 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 it touched people's heart and they said, like, the, 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 the only response I got is that they, they started to change their minds, like after hearing this, this uh, Donata's neighbor, who gradually changed the, his 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 thoughts about uh, people living with HIV/AIDS, and people are starting to change their attitudes towards people living with, with HIV/AIDS. So I think that's it was rewarding, and uh, that's the, the good response. But the only response that I don't know now, which is probably important, is uh, from those women who live with HIV/AIDS. If they, but I think now, since I play this story on the radio, uh, I think maybe they they learned something in the process. Did you know her previously? No, no, no I didn't know her before. But it's because um, in in Rwanda it's not like USA when you can live with someone like closer to to them and then you don't know them. I can live in five miles away from other one and I know them very much. So <laughs> I asked I asked people, uh, my friends at the conference, and they told me, because I knew in, in Ibutari, because I live in Ibutari in the southern Rwanda, uh, but I knew about that association, but I didn't know this woman particularly. So I, it's, it's by the time I went to interview the, the people in the association, the women in the association, that's when I I, I, I saw Donata. How did you approach her, and how did the two of you work on this together? That's a good question. Uh, you know, in, in to approach Donata, it was uh, one of my my biggest challenges because back in Rwanda, family matters are private, are very private. 
And uh, so I went there and I asked the women in the association if they could accept to share their stories and uh, to tell me something about the association. But uh, in the end, Donata stood out and because she's one of the leaders. And then she said, I'm willing to share my story. I can tell my story well. And then I, in I pre-interviewed her. And then I felt like she had a story to tell and uh, because she was willing to tell the story. So that's how. I, but I had to be careful because uh, because of some questions related to her private life. But as a journalist, I had to shake the fear of and then ask those questions. So that's what I did. Did she hear your story after? Did you play her the story afterwards? And no, I didn't play it for her personally, but she heard, I'm sure she heard it on radio because she called me and said, <laughs> oh, wow, I'm happy to say that. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, she. Uh, we became friends now, but now she she says that I, she she's she's willing that I can go back even do more stories about the association, because they the the then the, the name of the association is Abachenimowe in my native Kinyarwanda, which means people those who need sympathy. So they are willing to teach other people, like to to teach them. Because in my country, people living with the HIV AIDS, they, they are not open. They can't tell that they live with HIV AIDS. And this is a problem because they don't stop ha having sex with the other people, unprotected sex, I mean. So these women are willing to teach other people living with the HIV AIDS that living with the HIV AIDS is a, well, it's a problem, but it's it's a disease. But you, you it's uh, it's not good to to go and contaminating other people. So they want to like share their stories uh, and lecture other people, other people living with HIV/AIDS, how they can behave, how they can stop those uh, uh, bad behaviors of con con contaminating other people. Yeah, so they are willing to keep in touch with. Uh, in that sense. Have you pitched anything to the BBC yet? Uh, not so far, but the only problem is that BBC does not take... Uh, like Unsolicited. Yeah, but it takes, but it, it takes a time and uh, it's really hard, but I think I started the process because, because b before I came to USA, I, may, I had a chance to meet one of uh, my heroes on the BBC. So he's Rwandan, but he's uh, been working for BBC for quite a number of years, like I think now 20 years. And um, yeah, I met him and uh, I talked to him in person about my dream of, of working on BBC one day. And he told me, he encouraged me and said, it's possible one day I can be on BBC. And I have to tell you that this morning, he called me and he interviewed me about this conference for Rwandan audience. Yeah, so. What's his name? His name is Ifelenka Kwaya. Uh, but I also have uh, other heroes like uh, White, Robin White, who is a great documentarian on BBC. I like him. Uh, and uh, one of my dreams is uh, to become like him, to produce more documentaries on BBC. He did pitch, pitch something, a different piece, to the CBC. 
And, uh, and I say this because I think that it's important for people in the room, and I know that this is a supportive audience, but that's the kind of piece that Predal produced, so it was great. And they said, yeah, we're not sure about the accent. And, yeah, seriously, this is what we get. And so people are always talking the talk about new voices and whatever, and then you pitch shit, and then they're like, what I'm also trying to pitch, because Predal does the show, was, well now, five other people started with three, and now it's five. And so in Canada, everybody only knows and maybe here too, about Rhonda, and they only think about the genocide. And we're coming up to the 15th anniversary. So I was trying to pitch this idea that they would do stories, um, and Prédon, at this point, doesn't need as much help, but some of the other people need some help, so we get them some help on how to do those stories about what life is like in Rhonda now. And so rolling out for the CBC for a 15th anniversary special, you package up a couple five-minute mini-docs about life in Rhonda now, you know, life since the genocide. And I can't get anybody to take this. It's just, so people are always like, what an amazing idea for some other show that I have no responsibility on, you, you know? Try, did you try NPR? Did you well, try I haven't tried NPR yet. Well, I think they, yeah. I, mean, I really bet. Yeah. There's people yeah. here too. We okay, because this is something that, yeah, like, it's, it's amazing, it's so frustrating for me because, I mean, Prida is exceptional. I'm sure that that's clear. He's exceptional, but, he's not completely out of the realm. Like other people are also telling great stories and to not be able to get them places is really frustrating. And that's with a North American trying to hustle for them. Imagine if somebody didn't have that kind of person who was doing that. It would be even more impossible. And it's, anyway. It seems to me that you and Stacy need to talk about other modes of distribution. Yeah, that's well, we're hoping to start podcasting that show, SMR, Saturday Morning Reports, but yeah, that's great. But maybe, yeah. I mean, you can go way beyond podcasting yeah. or something yeah. like that, and mm -hmm. it sounds like you could do anything else. Yeah, yeah, PRX. Yeah. PRX. Yeah. PRX. I thought about PRX. Because then people could oh, yeah. just pick it up. Absolutely. Stations would pick it up, a little series of, yeah. for the 15th anniversary. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we can feature it on the whole thing. There you go. Feature that in a second. Yeah. Really? Okay. Can you have your dream come true? Exactly. Thank you. See what happens? Yeah. Okay, you can also. I've had some luck with them. I've been working on it. If you are doing it, I'll send you the iTunes. You can get them to feature on the front page as well. Okay, so we'll get our audience to the iTunes. We tend to the front audiences. Okay, spotlight back. Yeah. Okay. The one thing, you know, would it would you be able to do a story about that, that kind of story about a man? Yeah, yeah. I think I can. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's true, women are, are more are easier to approach than men in my country. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I don't know, I can't really tell the reason why, but I think I, I can do that story also. Uh, about the, the similar story of, of, about men. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a great idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have a question for you about that. Um, you know, for a lot of people, and, and I mean, I'm really mainly speaking about me and what I assume about other people. I think for journalists, you know, it, it, it takes years to kind of continue to cultivate this, you know, thick skin where you can um, do these interviews with people who are in situations where maybe they're suffering and you're not, um, you know, having to overcome, you know, emotions and so I mean I feel like it never really goes away but you get used to 
like you said, separating yourself and being the journalist, you know, while you're doing the story. But I was wondering about those kids that you talked to, like, and this is only your third story. <laughs> and I'm really impressed if you were able to just stay in that journalist mode, but how did you manage to do that? That's a great question. It was a hardship for me because um, interviewing little kids that I, I think that I've never done before, it was a hard thing for me to do. But also finding questions that that little girl could understand and have a, an answer for that question, that was a great challenge for me. I always had to sweat, finding, looking for a plain Kenya Rwanda that she would understand and have the answer on that. Yeah, but yeah, the kid was uh, smart and then she, she answered all my questions. Okay, we should, uh, thank you. Yeah, My pleasure. Now, Andrew, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, that's how I know him. I'm sorry, I, that just came out naturally. Pendarvis Andrew Harshaw. <laughs> Hello, everybody. My name is Pendarvis Harshaw. I'm a uh, junior telecommunications major from Oakland, California. And this is a story about the evolution of media and how it helped cultivate me. When I was 15, I stumbled into Youth Radio, which was located in Berkeley, California, and I met Beverly. At the time, I was going by my middle name, Andrew, and I was a rapper. And all I wanted to do was rap. Nothing else mattered. I'd stopped playing baseball all summer. My mom got sick of me rapping, so she said, get out the house and go do something with your rap career. So I went to a radio station, Youth Radio. Come to find out, it wasn't your average radio station. <laughs> It was actually an after-school program, and it, it, was, it basically put me where I needed to be, on radio. The first week, the first week in the door, on the radio as a DJ. And I was content with being a DJ, but I still wanted to rap. So I needed to find other ways to express my writing ability. Well, I said I got tired of the DJing thing, and I found myself in the newsroom. The newsroom is where the world opened up to me. Um, Coinciding with my adventure into the newsroom, I took an adventure to Ghana. Um, I was at a, a college preparatory school, and it funded a trip for me to go to Ghana and experience the arts. And I came back from this trip, and I just kept telling people about it. And the people in the newsroom were like, stop talking about it and write it. <laughs> and so I wrote, I wrote the story, and it was a comparison between um, everything that I saw in Accra, uh, the capital of Ghana, and what I saw in my neighborhood in Oakland. And the piece aired on National Public Radio and it got held to high acclaim and I was like, oh, I'm not a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, I've, I've been writing since. Um, I've had pieces about, um, about friends of mine who have passed. I've had pieces about um, politics in Oakland, about um, this, black society, about um, the N-word. I've had pieces about um, a number of different things that I've experienced. Um, most recently, I've wrote a piece with um, Youth Radio. Youth Radio has a segment with, um, with the National Public Radio titled, What's the New What? Saying that, um, you know, yesteryear's generation had, had this, and now this generation has this. Um, an example of, what was, an example of liquor stores of the new department stores how people buy clothes at liquor stores or something like that. Um, my piece was a little, um, little, it hit home, especially in regards to what uh, Proudhon just talked about. Um, 
my piece was titled Sex Without Condoms is the New Engagement Ring. And it um, it was a synopsis, or not even a synopsis, I bet you, it was basically a, um, a product of a bunch of conversations with a bunch of my peers. I'm also a resident assistant at Howard University um, and working in a freshman dormitory. And um, <coughs> I talked to a lot of young, young black men from all across the nation. And you know, um, you pretty much either talk about sports, education, or girls. And around the topic of girls, they always talk about when they get into a monogamous relationship, how they try or tend to get away from the usage of um, birth control methods, such as condoms. And um, this alarmed me, and I wanted to do a piece about it, and it coincided with the fact that Youth Radio is doing this What's the New What? So I came up with the title of the piece, and um, I'll play it, and then I'll describe how it goes, it lends itself to what you could call the new media. Today's Thursday, that is day to day's day four. What's the new what? What's the new what? What's the new what? What's the new what is our series of commentaries from Youth Radio about new trends in young America. Here's Youth Radio's Pandarvas Harsha with today's new what. What's the new what? Sex without a condom is the new engagement ring. My generation has known the threat of HIV AIDS our entire lives. And sex without a condom isn't something we enter into lightly. For a lot of my friends, the transition from having sex with to sex without a condom is seen as a symbolic engagement. It shows trust, commitment, and the prospect of a shared future. An engagement more practical than spending money on a piece of jewelry for a marriage that might not pass the test of time. Now, close your eyes and envision the classic love story. Ah, it sounds a bit like this, right? Engagement 2.0 goes something more like this. First, a couple has an intense sit-down, during which they decide if they're ready to trash those Trojans. If things are right to take that plunge, they swap that trip down the aisle for a hand-in-hand down a health clinic hallway, where they get screened for STDs and choose a method of birth control, such as pills, patches, or shots. Losing the latex doesn't mean the young folks are looking to have babies. On the contrary, the majority want to steer clear of children and disease while enjoying the pleasures of healthy sex. To have sex without a condom is to say that I trust you and I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with you. If I make a decision to, you know, skip the condom process, then, you know, it's safe to say I love you without me saying that. You know, a ring is very temporary and you can sort of just take that ring off. Whereas, you know, if you don't use condoms and you get an STD, then it's sort of a much less temporary result of your engagement than a tan line on your finger. Do you take this disease-free person to be your sexual partner? I I do. do. By the power vested in me, I now pronounce sex without a condom the new engagement ring. You see, marriage to me is like thick and thin. A promise forever that can never end. Nothing else. They've been doing this ever since Adam and Eve. They've been doing this for So you can imagine this piece being played to an NPR audience <laughs> nationwide. Um, I believe it, it aired on Day to Day. 
which um, day-to-day time slot, anybody? Afternoon. Afternoon? Okay, afternoon. I, I know it was some time that kids would be listening. <laughs> um, so, new media. New media, or what they call new media, what I know is media, period, um, is basically the connection between all forms of media. This piece started out as a written piece. Then I recorded it, and it got broadcast. Of course, if it gets broadcast, it gets posted on the internet. Once it's posted on the internet, I mass email it to all of my friends, and then I post it on Facebook, too. Facebook is a social networking site, so everybody knows, because my friends don't listen to national public radio, of course, right? Then, on the opposite side of things, people who don't really uh, feel what I'm talking about, they start a blog about it. And, of course, they comment all day. So, we have blog wars. And... This is new media coming full fold when you see that this radio piece gets turned into a video piece by um, actually a couple of my coworkers at Youth Radio back in Oakland. They um, went out and interviewed some people to see how they felt, you know, just some random voice on the street interviews. And then they uh, uploaded it to YouTube and um, current, current TV also. And this is using all forms of media and using the internet. And it's just, it's amazing to me that you know, I started out as a rapper, but now I'm doing this whole multimedia thing, and it's uh, it's a little amazing. So I, I definitely appreciate what this piece has shown to me, and even more so, I appreciate, you know, the start with Bev, the Professor Sonia Williams, and Ed Howard, and uh, now we're here. So. Yes, I'm sorry. You said somebody started a blog about it. So yeah. somebody somebody basically wanted to comment on it, and there was nowhere to comment. And so they started a blog so they could put their comment out there. Is that right? Um, there was actually a comment board by NPR. NPR started a comment board. Who was NPR's no, then another individual started their own blog about it. Oh, so okay. they had space to comment. And they chose... <laughs> They chose to, yeah, exactly. Did they post on their existing <clears throat> blog about it, or did they yeah? I think I think I think it's their their existing blog. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, their existing blog, and they had just one titled this, and yeah. <laughs> I know, really. So, so the people that were commenting on NPR's site, what were they saying? And then the the blog post about it, what did that say? Um, the blog post about it was um, all in all, it it did what it what I wanted it to do. I wanted it to spawn um thought thought and, and conversation. I wanted people to be talking about this because it's something that um, if, if I'm working on a, a floor, a resident, residential hall floor with kids from all across the nation, then that means this is affecting more people. Than this is just a small demographic, a small representation of a larger demographic. Um, I got just a couple of examples. I love looking at this. Um, I got, there's this one comment right here. Pendarvis Harshaw's essay should be on the WTF program. <laughs> Get it? <laughs> um, there's also, there's also uh, Jesus, what a pile of useless crap this report is. There's also, um, oh, uh, this, I love this one. It means a bright future for my kids, nephews, and nieces who will not have a problem dominating such half-witted masses. And this is all on the NPR site. And then um, once I released it to my, my world of Facebook friends and, and email cohorts, um, and even more so other people started reading it, 
Um, it started balancing out, and I definitely got some comments about my accent. Um, I got some comments about uh, the perspective, and even more so, it came out a week before CNN released a report about um, AIDS statistics in specifically Washington D.C., but then the Black community in America as a whole. As, <clears throat> excuse me, as a whole, and it um, it was a, a heated discussion. Um, it even came into the classroom with me. Um, a professor in the communications department used it as um, subject matter for the, for their class. So um, it it did its job. It definitely did. It spawned a lot of. What so. were the comments about your accent? Um, I can't find that one. There's so many comments right no, now. It said uh, it said some some it said something about this um about this it said something about a West Coast accent or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, like it said something about a West Coast urban accent or something like that. West Coast urban. Did you say you could respond to anybody, or were you okay? Were you like, oh, I've done my part? And then um, they NPR wanted me to do a letter in response, um, but at the same time, uh, CNN had got a hold of it for the. They wanted to relate the two with the, I guess, with their findings and. In this, so I ended up writing a short blog for CNN, and I didn't get back to NPR in time, and they were like, "It's okay." But yeah, as a whole, I, I just felt like I had done my job, and I had put shine some light on the, the issue, and I figured that's what journalism is about. Mm -hmm. Great. Has there been any like positive effects or like movements or like anything to like help the community, like more like knowledge on like safe sex or anything? Or is there anything like what like what's progressed out of this? Um, definitely the. Professor Miles in the communications department of Howard University, um, he, he brought it to his class um, in effort to get people to write, um, to critique it and to take it further into their own world. Um, as far as uh, applying it to society head on, um, I haven't seen any uh, tangible movements, I would say. Just talking about the, the piece itself, one of the things I thought was really interesting about it is by the end of it, I didn't know how you felt about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I thought that was really, I thought that was really a nice mm -hmm. piece of it because I kept on thinking, okay, he's going to tell me how he feels about it, and and there was a certain kind of suspense there. Yeah, and I liked it that it was left totally unresolved. And that's so, that, that's that what nice. that's what my 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 perspective is not it's not on me to judge. You know, it's, I don't have who 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 am I to judge? You know, like um, it's just. It's a phenomenon, and hey, I'm noticing it. Is anybody else noticing it? Well, if not, let me talk about it. I mean, it's really unusual to hear a commentary that doesn't, doesn't take a position. <laughs> a commentary that <laughs> there's no comment to this, Terry. <laughs> 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 is, that, is that technically even supposed to be a commentary? If it's this is the new this, isn't it just like trying to Yeah, there, there are um, other examples. There's this one I love. Um, it's uh, Disrespect <laughs> is the New Chivalry. <laughs> I love that piece. And this girl, she's just talking about just the how hectic it is to walk down the street and all these guys gawking at her. And it's like, wow, is this the new chivalry? And she really takes a stance like, nah, I can't take this anymore. And so, yeah, um, there are people who, who offer uh, their own emotion towards stuff. Especially with this subject, I think, yeah, it would have been so easy for you to take a position, and it would have been like public service announcement almost, you know? But this way, it's like you keep it as, I'm just telling you what I see, you know? And then and then that's further when you have the clip. Oh, you could yeah. take the other position too, right? Different kind of public service announcement. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah, that's true. Are the majority of the folks in the piece African-American? 
in the interviews. Yeah. I'm glad you noticed that. That was Did the. That bother you at all? That was making it kind of pigeonholed in that, and, and then CNN kind of talking to you as like, this is a problem affecting African Americans across exactly. the country. I'm going to talk. You know, let's go to this guy who knows the story. I, I guess I just wonder how you feel. Exactly. About that. that was a problem. Um, you could imagine. I'm working in. I do the piece um, over Christmas break of last year, and I'm back at school for my second semester, and I don't have any equipment to actually interview people on campus. So the interviews, I gave the questions to a producer back in Oakland, and the interviews were conducted in Oakland, but the problem is that all of the immediate people around him were youth radio workers, and he could only interview the ones 18 and, and up, obviously because we're talking about sex, and the ones that were 18 and up happened to be African American. And even more so, it was hard, it was hard enough for him to find a, a female voice. And um, he he pointed it out when he after he did it, and I was like, "Wow, um, we're really setting us ourselves up for uh, like an an underlying theme or something, you know?" Um, and there, yeah, there was just one uh, one white girl, and that's it. And all the rest of them were yeah, African American male. I would think the trend is much wider. I would say it's almost yeah, and and, and that's that and, that and I'm glad you said that too. It, it just it slipped my mind, but the comments, the comments were, were just so, after, after the, the hate mail, I would say, <laughs> you have to understand, like, all right, in my past experience doing articles, it usually goes, okay, you have something airing on NPR today, and it's my producer talking to me, and I'm like, all right, cool, and then I get a phone call a little later, or an email, like, hey, your piece is blowing up, it's, you know, most emailed of the day, or something like that, like, yeah, good, so then I get a phone call, when this airs, like, hey, your piece is blowing up, it's the most emailed of the day, I'm like, cool, and I go check it like I normally do, and I see all the hate stuff, and I'm like, oh, this isn't cool. It's not cool by far. Um, but after a while, it started, a lot of different perspectives started to come, come to play. Um, there's this one comment by, uh, um, by, I can't remember this gentleman's name. He's a, 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 an older homosexual man, and he said he completely agreed with it because he can't get married. So what is he to do? And I was like, wow, I never thought about how it applies to different demographics. There's a um, there's so many different perspectives on this issue that that it just it amazed me that you know that coming from coming from conversations with 18 year old uh, black men at one university spawned this conversation that applies worldwide and not only applies applies worldwide but actually gets people thinking worldwide. Was it always yes, your, your intent to approach it in a kind of satirical way? I think I've heard other pieces yeah. of yours, and that tends to be your approach. But did you, was that always your uh, approach there, intention? Um, satirical, yes. I say, I like to call it entertaining. Wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 nonetheless, yeah. And um, that, that is one of the negative feedbacks <laughs> I got, to, um, especially with the production on it, um, the album scratching and the hip-hop beat. Um, they say they want the new voice, but they don't want the new voice. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. They want the new voice to sound like the old voice. They want the new voice to sound drab. Yeah. Ari, one more time. You brought up a really interesting point, which is, and this is true, I think across, almost across the board in, in radio produced by young people, which is that you are much more limited than other radio folks in the people you can interview. The opportunity of because of the timing the program takes place because of when you can get the equipment and so on and I was just wondering if I could ask all of you to reflect on that I just want to interject one thing which is that we found that um, 
some of our, our teens from the summer program uh, told us that basically the only people they could interview were smokers because they'd go out at two or three in the afternoon and the only people standing outside were people taking smoking breaks. <laughs> <laughs> So, so there, I mean, there are these, these strange, you know, so I wonder, if, but I wonder if you can all talk, talk a little bit about how does, it, does that limitation affect you, or is it something that, that you can sort of sail over? Smokers and protesters. I, 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 start, I started in Berkeley, so it would be a lot of people protesting, too. So, yeah, that's very true. Exactly. That is their job. But how about for the rest of you? Is that a limitation for you or not? Well, for me, I've never actually found that. I have a lot of problem with equipment because my school only has one media lab, and a lot of the equipment in there is on a daily basis. So I can only rent out a Moran's kit for two days, and then I have to go back and check it in and check it out again if I want to borrow it again. <laughs> so that gets to be a hassle. I guess the question is, has that affected the content of your pieces? Um, no, I, I don't think so. Pain, but it doesn't. Well, I mean, it's frustrating because I don't. I mean, I'm sure I've missed out on opportunities when I, when I don't have a recorder. So, but otherwise, it's okay. Well, I, I guess I don't fully understand your question. I mean, young people can also go out and record after business hours. Well, but there's uh, there's often a sort of restriction on when the equipment's available. Some of oh. folks can or can't check out the equipment. Um, you have, you know, certainly less mobility than somebody working for. For NPR, even a lot of sort of independent producers who don't also have to, you know, go to school the next day. And also um, access to editing equipment is difficult sometimes. All mm -hmm. the stations are full. The lab is closed, and if the lab's not organized very well, and you know. Right. I guess I'm just thinking that that's a real limit. That access to people, you have fewer hours available. If it's not your profession to be doing this, if you have you have other stuff going on during the day, you have fewer hours available to get out and get to people. But I guess that's how where I'm coming from with it. Um, do we have any questions for the group at large? Any more questions? Yes. Hello. Hello. Um, my question is, um, I know Pandaris, um, you had mentioned that, you know, who's listening to NPR, you know, young people. Um, and just what is your motivation to continue producing pieces if we don't think that young people are listening to um, public radio? Just, that's for everybody. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that's for everybody. That's a good um, Who wants to start? What's your motivation? Um, I think I like the idea better that uh, of uh, collective listening rather than uh, podcasting or downloading uh, previously recorded shows. Um, so my my motivation. I mean, it's not. I know very little about radio. This is the second time I say that, but uh, um, but for the sh for the show, the sample that you heard was something that was um, done thinking of people listening at the same moment, um, and that's more inspiring to me than having it. They actually wanted to put it on the website um, afterwards, and I, I told them not to because um, it's, uh, it's something that happens and goes away. Wow, nice. Mm -hmm. cool. Thanks a lot. Mm -hmm. um, um, for me, I guess my motivation comes from, I, I think of audience, the audience as an additional reward, because mostly I do these stories, I guess, for my benefit. I just, I'm satisfied with simply producing it. Yeah, I think for me, uh, uh, my motivation is that at home in Rwanda, radio is still the number one source of information since many people can't read and uh, few can afford the televisions. So 
radio is far and away our most popular medium. That's why I get motivated and interested in radio. I think mine is um, twofold. It's one, I'm still that hungry rapper who wants to just speak to whoever will listen. And um, it's, it's, it's definitely something when I, I see this piece um, being uh, like it, I don't know what they call it, I guess they, it's linked. Um, like it started at NPR, then it gets linked to College Newswire and linked to MTV <coughs> University or something like that. And I, I see that, okay, I start here, but nonetheless, it can go further. And then um, the second portion of it is, uh, it's, it's funny, I was on the phone with my mom before yesterday's portion of the conference, and I was like, man, I kind of don't want to go to this. She was like, why not? She was like, I'm like, oh, there's not going to be any black people there. And she was like, well, that makes sense. You're black, and you don't want to go. So wait, hold on, wait, pause. <laughs> so it, it, it's like, yeah, if you want to make a change, you might as well be that change. So. You know, next time I'm riding in the car with my boys, I'm going to turn on NPR. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I think we have to wrap up. I want to thank everybody for coming.